Hello and welcome to the Centric Cities podcast, powered by the Centric Lab. So some of this material may be familiar to listeners to the Conscious Cities podcast, where it was previously hosted. However, we decided to bring things in-house so we can help with its intended direction. Centric are all about enhancing the user experience in the built environment. One of the main things that we do is work out to map out the ecosystems in which problems and businesses exist so we can try to identify the friction and tension points that humans experience. Well, that's what this podcast aims to explore by interviewing professionals working at the coalface of the businesses that are helping to design, build, manage and dream of the cities of tomorrow. So my name is Josh and I'll be your host. Episode 4 was originally recorded in June 2017 and is the second of a two-part series that focused on financial innovation in the industry. So this episode focused on interviewing startup CEO Daniil Bassiouni of Native Finance, and an associated venture called Common Home, which we talk a lot about. These guys are up to some very interesting things where I feel they're heading on that triumvirate of a win-win-win in civic-led urban development. So without any further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Daniil to the pod. Hey, Josh. Good, good. Um, Daniel, I've given a brief description about you, but can you explain a little bit more about who you are, um, a little bit about the background that led you to doing what you're doing today, which is Common Home? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, so I, uh, I started my career actually working in, uh, in development in the social, social sector. Um, so, you know, I always had the things that interested me were how to make the biggest change to the most number of people. So, so that's economic development, social development, or sort of property development, sorry? Uh, no, uh, so social development, international right. development, cool. I guess it would be called. Um, so working with people like Save the Children. Um, I then went on to work at McKinsey um, as a consultant, really was to develop those um, to develop those skills and to work with you know people like the World Health Organization, Oxfam, NSPCC, but also as part of my work there, I began to work more and more on innovation in financial uh, products and financial services. Um, and so my time at McKinsey really left me with uh, with a number of a number of things that I was interested in. But one of those was how can you apply innovation in financial services and financial products to actually address some of the big problems that we're facing societally. Sounds good. Sounds good. So tell us a little bit more about um, Common Home, which is relatively new, but something that's been in development and incubation for a while and has kind of grown out of something else as well that you've been working on. Yes, exactly. Um, So we've been working on Common Home now probably for uh, under kind of six months to a year, actually. It's still relatively early um, stages. It, it grew out of um, another another business, which is our main business that myself and my uh, co-founder, Praz, um, work on, um, which is native finance. So native finance, really, what became clear to us was that they're one of, one of the blockages of housing supply in the UK, as well as planning and land availability, um, was the availability of finance. And in particular, that was the availability of finance to uh, SME developers and house builders. Um, and then as part of, of, part of um, building up native finance, as part of arranging finance for developers um, and work on a number of projects, what became clear is that there was a real opportunity to actually, you know, rather than just arranging finance, really can redesign from scratch the way the development process happens. Um, and that's what led us to start Common Home. I should mention that Common Home is, as well as um, 
myself and Prize is a joint venture with um, uh, with some with an architecture firm, RCKA, um, and so we've been working on common home. Really, the focus was first of all, how do we make homes affordable? That's the, that was the very simple question which we started with, and really, how do we then the kind of flip side of that is where do you how do you um, strip out cost from the development process? Kind of, you know, unfortunate for our other business, but the, 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 the first thing that became clear is that one of the key, um, you know, areas of cost, the key um, things that adds to um, the sale, sales prices of homes to the customer is the developer profit. Um, and whilst there are lots of developers out there who, you know, deliver great schemes, that, that can also often be a blockage in terms of how innovative the development is um, and what kind of schemes are built. So are you talking uh, big schemes, small schemes? What sort of areas? Is this sort of in a city of London or is this around the regions of the UK or perhaps other areas of the world that you've seen different trends forming? So when, mm. when you say a blocker in the way, can you give kind of an example of, uh, mm. of where you've seen that or where you're looking to, to help? Yeah, so I mean, particularly at the moment, we're focused in urban areas and we're focused in London um, at the moment. Um, it, for, for us, the focus is on relatively small sites at the moment. Um, so it's, uh, you know, you're probably looking at sites as low as, you know, 10 units and then probably as high as 50 units. So those are like apartments or are they houses? Yes, they're, the... they're apartments. Yeah. Um, so... I mean, typically how the development process works is, I mean, you know, I'm <laughs> sure you know this, but the local authority often, it's, it's public sector owned land, will sell homes at, at um, will sell um, land at market value to a developer. Developer um, purchases the land, then gets planning for the land um, with an affordable housing requirement and goes on to build out the scheme. Often, though, what happens at that stage is the developer, you know, for for different reasons, but often the affordable uh, affordable housing yeah. component of those schemes can you know be be chipped away at. Yeah. Um, so I guess how we're trying to turn that on the head is actually why if the local authorities who we're speaking to and you know um, that's people like Lewisham, people like Haringey, um, people like Waltham Forest, if they are really committed to delivering affordable housing. Um, then for us, we see it as a, you know it's inefficient for them to actually sell the, sell the land onto a developer who then develops it and remove cuts out all the affordable housing. We very much say actually the local authority should keep the land, and actually it's good for us that the um, that uh, land is retained in public ownership mm. in perpetuity. Mm. But what we do is we provide a suite of services to allow the local authority to easily um, uh, support the development of homes um, for affordable housing. So all of our schemes are 100% affordable housing. Um, uh, and, and we get that in a number of ways. Um, so partly that's through, you know, obviously removing the developer profit. Partly that's through the modular building system that we've developed, which means that building um, uh, the, the construction costs are lower than they would otherwise be and part of that is actually of the, f- the financing model that we've developed for these schemes. So there was something interesting uh, that I found there, the idea that 
you know, there are short-term concerns of local authorities and central government and people that they need housing. One of the pitfalls, however, is looking too close and not actually realising what happens on a total point of view when when land is sold, when, when title of deed is given over without perhaps a longer-term view. And I think there are, there are creative organisations that were set up and supported by the Mayor of London recently, which is the Creative Land Trust, which is how to put... Uh, probably like second, third, fourth generation properties into a trust, mm. meaning that it can sustain itself. It stays within a broader sense of ownership and it's harder for it to get broken up. And that's one of the interesting things I've noticed about you guys in giving that, providing that sort of affordance and service to a local authority mm. to give themselves a short-term solution mm. without mitigating mm. um, any sort of long-term uh, interest and solutions because mm. It's quite clear that we see that there there is sometimes a problem of chasing a zeitgeist, chasing a, a, a cultural desire, and then we come around 20, 30 years later, and there's a horrific realization of oh my god, what have we done? Mm. And you can see that in a lot of the sort of the post-war sixties low quality modernist buildings mm. being torn down they're looking mm. at them going well this is no longer fit for purpose mm. do you ever find like the these ideas of uh, the quality of space and how you know what, what you're hearing from the architects that you work with to the local authorities what type of visuals and layouts and setups they're looking at um whether from a, a personal reason or perhaps a more uh, sustainable reason that they want certain sizes of homes or certain mm. bedrooms or they're looking at certain demographics who would actually be living in these things so you know a lot of the talk about big property developments is mm. going for the foreign investors they're going mm. for the very wealthy who are now pouring into cities mm. that's fine that's fine to have that one side of the market but it feels or maybe i'm putting words in your mouth but there is an opportunity then to be looking long term at the types of properties that you can build maybe more for the traditional sort of family market mm. or the non sort of personal investor market mm. do you find that's where you're angling the type of architecture and and offering to the market yeah i think i think that's very interesting i mean i think there's like there's a general trend which you know as you say is to go for short term interest over long term benefit and and that's something that particularly you know even in you know with the with land when a local authority sells a piece of land you know they they get the money that one time but then it's gone mm-hmm. uh you know and that's out of you know a, a piece of land that could be used for the public good you know is 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 no longer um owned by the public body um so that in itself is something that we you know that's kind of almost the basis of where we see that we need to focus really on long-term benefit rather than you know a one-off sale but then that does fall through to the architecture. I mean, often you now have like, you know, you can have developers who are kind of so focused on um, per square footage of the units that they're developing that actually the cost efficiencies are often undermined. So like, it's so important that, you know, a one bed, two person flat doesn't exceed this um, price per square, this, this square footage that actually there has to be changes made to the design to make the flat smaller, which often increase the cost. Um, it's very much something that we've seen, you know, our, with Common Home, you know, we're still working, it's still relatively early stages and we work on initial sites, um, uh, working out initial sites in Lewisham. For the flats, that, for the flats in the schemes that we're working on, the, um, our flats end up being like roughly the same say for the one bed two person roughly the same price as um as a pocket flat but actually the square footage is twice is double mm-hmm. um 
So, but we're able to do that because we have a modular building system by being generous to people, by actually deciding the bays that the units, um, the basic building blocks of, of, of our units are larger than would typically be, but they're always, you know, consistent. We get cost efficiencies that way. So I guess in terms of how does that fall through to the architecture, it's really about, you know, from the start, we've been thinking about who is it that who is it that's going to live in these homes, and how do we make them um, as affordable as possible, but also genuinely beautiful homes to live in that are spacious, that don't feel tiny, that aren't really restricted, um, and that and yeah, that's really important to us, and that's both on kind of an individual family home level, but also actually about how people live um, in community with each other. What's the gallery space like? Um, where's the communal space and so on? And the benefit is, is that, you know, particularly at the moment, the kind of sites that we're looking at are ones that, you know, a typical developer might pass over because there might not be enough profit in it for, in the scheme for them. Um, but for us, we're, we're able to deliver, you know, really beautiful homes on those, on those sites. That's great. And a more wasted space, basically. But mm. I think to, to, to back up, and I mean, there, there are mounting studies, uh, a lot of evidence coming towards um, things like embodiment from small spaces mm. and the effect of uh, children's growth. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, it is becoming equally unhealthy to grow up in small windowless mm houses mm. as it is to live nearby heavy levels of pollution so i think that there's an interesting uh parallel there i mean um coming coming on to the sort of the alternative financing if that's the right way mm-hmm. to describe um native finance that well because that is an important mechanism of this mm. we understand that um you know a common home is looking at the supply chain and how do you remove one element to mm. improve other elements mm. uh, financing naturally is really really important mm. it's the bread and butter of what gets done so in that because you guys have been doing this for a while um where do you feel the the size of that market can get do you feel it's uh it's another tool it's quite a democratizing uh, aspect or do you feel it's like this will lead the way that future developments and the built environment can be done um as opposed to just always having to go to the banks what's your what's your maybe your personal view and then if you have a different or maybe not different professional mm. view i think the first thing to say is that as a market property finance finance if we're totally honest has seen very little disruption particularly what i'm thinking about is you know what you could call b2b property finance so when it's an institutional lender lending to a, uh, a, a property developer. So, I mean, there's loads of stuff that's happening, uh, you know, like crowdfunding, um, different, different kind of crowdfunding um, platforms out there, which I have to say I'm fairly, often fairly sceptical about. Yeah, quite a few people are becoming quite sceptical. Can you, uh, sorry to interject, but can you explain the difference in what you guys are doing to perhaps mm. some of the more media-friendly at the moment, at mm. least, uh, crowdfunding platforms and how you're kind of differing there? So, like, a crowdfunding platform, um, if you think about um, uh, on the development side, which is the area of the market that we're focused on, often how that's structured is a developer has a, has a development, has a project. They have potentially bank finance that they've secured for the project, but they don't have enough equity. And what happens then is that a crowdfunding platform is used to often to raise the equity for the project as, as preferred equity. So that, you know... All sounds great, you know, particularly for you as a punter, you know, you're looking at these developments and um, 
there's the opportunity to potentially get, you know, 8%, 10%. For you, that's looking like a great interest rate. And with interest rates where they are, you know, you would you would definitely put your money into those kind of kind of projects. Yeah, and property's a sure thing, isn't it? Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> and that's the real thing, is that development is a very risky business. Mm. And what's basically, you know, what the market would say is basically happening with these platforms is they're taking, you know, dumb money, which... Uh, doesn't necessarily understand the risks of um, of development and how risky in particular it is to put equity into developments. And they're using that to, you know, get developments going and to do that at a, at a lower cost than they typically would. But the risk to the consumer is really huge. And it's probably okay at a time, you know, the, the, over the past few years when developments have generally been going, you know, well, the market's been booming, but a point when the market hits a bit of a wall is when you really have concern for all these people who put money into these developments. So that's kind of, that's, those are the kind of models that, you, that you're seeing popping up. So, uh, you know, people like Property Moose, the house crowd, um, crowd lords a number of other ones property partner doing that with buy to let Mm -hmm. um but that's a relatively safer segment of you know uh of the market actually completed homes but it's really those who are raising funds for development projects from kind of uh punters which which i see the main concern yeah so the um to, to follow on that is there a size of the type of development i think i saw something going around I can't remember the exact location. It might have been China, could be Canada, uh, in a skyscraper being crowdfunded in theory. So if we take this idea of sort of alternative funding from non-traditional banks, non-traditional large uh, real estate investment corporations, um, I know, I know we know at the moment you guys are focusing on um, uh, residential schemes. Uh, typically, I think you were saying around sort of 10 units, naturally they can get a little bit bigger. Uh you know, in your heart of hearts or in your gut, are you see you know, how big can you see this getting? Can you see this getting, you know, 500 apartments, these almost new quarters of areas being delivered uh, through a sort of a broader range of investors, of individuals, of people, and looking at a different type of sort of architecture and style? You know, do, you, do you feel that it has a... A, uh, a a sort of glass ceiling to it, or um, I don't know. To, 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 don't know. Let me ask your opinion on that. Well, I think it's important to separate the two two areas that we focus on. So, I guess first of all, so with native native finance, um, our focus is on arranging finance for development projects. Um, and so, the people who come to us looking for finance are property developers, and the people who we arrange finance uh, for them. Uh, with are institutional lenders and by that we mean they're not you know Joe Bloggs a punter who's going to put you know 50k into a development they are property lenders whose bread and butter is lending on um, on development projects what we do that's totally unique is typically if you're a property developer you might know one lender who you can go to or you might know you know kind of family friend who's a broker who might hook you up with a couple of other lenders um, but what we do is we provide property developers with access to the whole of the market of, um, of, for development finance. That's particularly, particularly powerful and useful at the moment because there's this, we're already seeing, you know, pre-07, all, all development finance came from the larger banks. 
they massively retrenched. Post 07, there's a huge number of specialist debt funds providing um, lending for for developments. But you know, if you're if you're a developer in you know Norwich or Birmingham or Coventry, it's very unlikely that you know who these development lenders are in uh, you know with their offices in Mayfair. So really, we very much see as important that aspect of what we do is providing access to um, the whole of the market and then actually you know really streamlining and refining the process so that you get terms really quickly in terms of knowing um, in, in terms of finance for your project and you're able to actually get on with your with your bread and butter which is you know getting on with the development so that's that's kind of our, our core focus there how big can it be well, development lending at the moment probably looks like the full, the whole market, um, and that's excluding uh, house builders who raise finance publicly, you know, in the Barretts of this world, um, is around thirty billion. Um, we very simply, we, ours is a broker model, so we we um, uh, we charge a transaction for the for the loan, but you know, it's fair to say it's it's a fairly significant uh, market. And there's not really anyone in the market who's, who's, who's trying to do the same stuff that we are at the moment, partly because it's pretty specialist, partly because, you know, um, there's not, you know, everyone who's doing a tech startup is doing a kind of, you know, either a state online estate agent or like a rental management platform, because yeah, like yeah. those are the things that you think about because you're like, oh, I want to buy a house and estate agents are annoying or like, oh, like, why isn't it easier for me to rent out my home? But like in this type of the market, which you know, is very much like the nuts and bolts of the building industry, there's very little innovation. So I think that's uh, that's interesting because you know the way I've looked at London, city I've lived in and grown up in my, my entire life, other than university, was you know it's its own beast. It runs as it does. It's a city of wealth and hell being at the moment, and it's you know it's trying to flip around in that sense. But uh, it's it's not just about London. Actually, one of the UK's biggest problems has been its over reliance on on London, sort of post uh, the sort of the modern industrial sort of breakdown through the sixties, seventies, and eighties, where you saw uh, original heartlands of the UK completely sort of ripped apart. So if if I'm if I'm getting it right, you you guys through Native um, are enabling. Uh, those who may not have the access, you're giving them an access tool so that the the ideas of you know better deals and perhaps novelties and speed uh, can be provided to areas that might not have the most immediate direct returns, as in sort of guaranteed. You know, generally you put something up in London, it will probably sell or rent unless you've been over ambitious. But by removing a lot of stress, by removing fracture, by opening up opportunities, mm. you're giving more certainty to perhaps developments in other areas of the UK that are mm. crying out mm. for this, but are reliant on the traditional house builders who, you know, okay, they build a lot of homes, but they don't build enough and they don't build enough higher quality and it's mm. only relied to them. So do, do you feel that your your greatest opportunity beyond sort of the testing more down in, uh, mm. here in London is actually looking at an, more empowerment in the cities that you'll see a lot more peer-to-peer uh, so, or you know, business to business uh, lending and development projects uh, outside of the sort of the core, you know, capital cities. I mean, so it's worth saying the majority of our projects are already outside of London. That's good, um, and that is the case partly because the people who uh, you know mo- for whom accessing finance is the biggest problem is outside of London. That's the first thing to say. Do I think that there is more opportunity in um, in those areas, um, you know, in the regional areas, Bristol, um, Birmingham, Manchester, those types of cities, which are, you know, thriving, booming cities? 
uh, for innovative development projects. I mean, definitely. I mean, part. I mean, really, it just comes down to the land price, right? I mean, in London, the land price is so high that it's really prohibitive in terms of the um, the type of design and the type of units that you can you can deliver. Whereas, you know, the fact that land prices are lower um, uh, just gives a lot more opportunity um, in 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 these kind of areas that you know would typically be called regional. Mm. Okay, let, let's move let's move back to common home, mm. and I want to ask a little bit more. Uh, you mentioned it earlier it's a big big boomy thing but the idea of modular housing mm. so I mean uh, legal in general the big insurance mm. fund they've uh, invested in a, in a massive factory uh, in order to build modular housing up in Newcastle so mm. when some you know when uh, a typically risk averse organisation invest serious capital I mean hundreds of millions and it's one of their big banks in there I think it's their either build to rent or the private mm. rental sector mm. market they want to go into it it's getting big mm. uh you know it's it's an exciting market for you guys what's the kind of the interesting what's the innovation that's happened recently that you guys have, have sort of picked up on and as you said when you can look at delivering that through sort of some of the common home schemes mm. you can become more affordable in how you deliver it mm. has there been something revelatory that kind of happened recently um, in that process that made it more accessible hmm. I mean there's a few things to say about modular housing oh. uh, one is that there's a lot of buzz around modular housing yep. the reality is sometimes it's cheaper, sometimes it's not um, why is it not? because like any, any factory produced product it requires efficiencies of scale and uh, yeah, there's the big legal and general factory. I mean, as far as I'm, you know, I'm 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 not directly plugged into what's going on at the moment, but it still isn't, you know, fully off the ground delivering at scale. And then modular housing, if 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 uh, I mean, if at lower scales, if a factory is not producing enough homes, if it's not regular, if there's not enough schemes that are being delivered that are modular then the cost for the infrastructure you have in the factory is, you know, is very expensive and actually the homes often end up not being cheaper. So the key thing to make modular work is scale. And with a number of investors coming into the space, factories being set up, I mean, particularly already delivering modular units in the commercial space, so for schools and hospitals, and, you know, that's been happening for a while, while, while now. That has really uh, opened up um, the availability of modular suppliers and means that it's a lot more reasonable to think you could, you could build a development that was modular. And it could be cheaper. Having said that, for us, the most interesting aspect of modular construction is that it de-risks the development. So typically, if you're looking at a development, if you know, we're looking at a development for a lender, there's two things that we would really focus on. One is the construction risk. You know, can this developer actually deliver these homes? Um, and one is the sales risk. Can they sell the homes for the price that they're saying they're going to sell them for? What's really interesting about modular... Um, modular construction is that suddenly the construction risk is really limited because you have, you know, a fixed price that you know um, uh, for each of the units. You know, the units um, in terms of the actual site, there's work to do on the groundwork, mm-hmm. but otherwise it's relatively straightforward. So the role that a contractor plays is is much, is, is, is much less, um, and it's fairly straightforward how the how the units kind of you know slot together. So suddenly that means that, like, actually the whole argument, which is, you know, developers um, 
uh, take so much risk and that's why there needs to be so much profit for them doesn't make sense anymore. Some now, actually, if you're looking at modular development and the construction risk is very low, actually the kind of point of view that we're coming from is the risk is much lower for those developments and therefore the kind of profit that you would you know, be expecting and added to um, your sales price should go down. So in, um, with the ability to uh, produce and bring down the cost of your average product, so your cost per product comes down and you're delivering it, mm. and then your price to market is lower. Um, in natural economics, you've got this idea of supply and demand, high demand, low supply, you can have a high price. In some sense, what you're saying is that there is an opportunity to increase the volume produced mm. at a significantly lower cost and deliver a lower cost product to market. Uh, how is that potentially going to be received by an industry that's valued on low supply and high value and also high assets? No one really wants to see equity go down. What are those? You know, are there any conversations like this occurring, or do you feel it's actually quite a, a simple equation of there's an area of the market that's not being satisfied? Mm. Yeah, so it's worth saying. I mean, we're relatively small scale at the moment, so oh yeah, we, we've got we got a big we got a big big blue sky thinking hat <laughs> on right now. But yeah, for. So, I mean, it is, uh, it is clearly true that one impact that modular construction could have, should have, is starting to have, is lowering the cost of, the, of units. So the first thing is, does that lower cost actually go on to the consumer? For many of the people out there who are delivering modular housing schemes at the moment, that's not the case. All that's happening is it often increases the developer margin. So what's that impact on the kind of, you know, supply-demand landscape? It's basically nothing. The other question then is, um, you know, for someone like us, who's actually delivering homes through a modular building system and passing on the cost efficiencies to the consumer, and therefore, you know, you can get a beautiful one-bed, two-person flat or two-bed, four-person flat or a duplex um, much lower than you would typically, you know, can be is from 30 to 40% lower than market value. What impact will that have on the market? Well, you'd expect that it's, you know, what what excites us about it is suddenly going to make the market competitive. Mm, good, you're a challenger um, in that way. It's... And like, why, you know, why would you ever buy, buy a home that was 30% more and was actually potentially even smaller? Well, yeah, that becomes particularly interesting. There's one thing that is worth saying about the, the whole supply demand in housing, and it's you know, I feel like it's not often emphasised enough that, yes, there is a shortage of supply, there's a shortage of, um, of housing in the UK, but the supply is often, you know, artificially restricted. You know, as soon as the market looks like it's, like it's about to turn, the larger developers stop commencing sites because they don't want to, you know, uh, they, they don't want to lower the, lower the price that they're selling their units for. So it just means that to be able to genuinely impact this market um, through modular construction, it would have to be at scale. And to be it, to get to that kind of scale, the modular building system is part of it. But actually, it's also the partnership with local authorities is really critical that they're providing. Because, I mean, it, take London, for instance. I mean, I haven't checked it recently, but I think it's around 60% of land that could be used to deliver affordable housing is owned by local authorities. So suddenly you start thinking, 
actually, if you could partner with local authorities, if you could um, work with them with a modular building system um, and also provide the finance expertise to arrange finance for those developments, then delivering affordable housing at scale becomes you know, a very exciting and also much more realistic prospect. Mm. It's, it's, I mean, local authorities can go slightly broader than just you know, the councils of own properties, but the um, I, we had an architect uh, come in to do a, a Conscious Cities talk uh, recently, and he, said, he actually stated, and he's a, an architect that principally works on uh, hospitals, and that at the NHS own more land, and this is all sort of title, freehold, mm. deed land, uh, than the Queen. Mm. Uh, you know, the scale of their portfolio as such, you know, they are, they're still, they're a public authority. Mm. Um, but, you know, you then bring in these questions of well, how best, and this isn't the idea of, you know, how can we strip away assets, but how can we best use what we've got and be smarter mm. about how we can deliver things of value? So, you know, I see huge opportunity in what you guys are doing in, if there are sites in delivering high quality, let's just say modular for the second, um, type of housing for elderly care, community care, aspects like this on NHS sites. I mean, the other people who are doing it very well at the moment are um, Transport for London. Mm. This is public land, but mm. you know they, um, you know, as a new entity, they're still kind of a quango. London Underground mm. Limited is their entity, and I think alongside that, they're releasing a lot of land into the public realm to be developed on because mm. they realize they are sitting there with an opportunity that needs to be matured mm. um, and, and crystallized for a lot of uh, you know to meet the targets you know they have a responsibility mm. as well I mean they've done that because they've got great proximity to uh, you know to transport mm. uh, you know when, when it comes to releasing public land mm. which is just said before you know public authorities own a lot of land mm. is there something you see there's like there's there's a hook missing there's a, there's a trick they're saying if only these guys had X or Y or this technology brought these guys together or we could quantify this or that it would make a difference in how we could release this land or release this process or speed up the process or is it really there's just not enough stuff is there anything that you're seeing in these conversations gone if only that were in place it's a changing landscape you know and I think local authorities get a lot of stick but they are um increasingly looking at more innovative ways to release land um, to partner with other organizations and and there's lot you know it's still things that are relatively in their infancy but you know community land trust custom build housing and and, and and so on so i think it's i think it's worth saying that like as much as as much as they could get a lot of stick because they, they're sitting on a lot of land and they're not using it to develop um, and to address the affordable housing crisis that we're facing. I think it's worth saying also that it's kind of understandable why they haven't, because basically, you know, post-Thatcher, right, suddenly public bodies weren't re- couldn't really develop off their balance sheet anymore. So, you know, people talk about the housing crisis. Largely, private house building has stayed the same. Public house building has, you know, massively um, gone down. But that's really because they haven't been able to develop. So what, what I guess, we're starting to see now, which is, which is particularly exciting, is some of the more kind of ambitious... Um, local authorities, you know, people like, for instance, Croydon um, uh, uh, setting up independent but wholly owned by the, by the council um, development companies. So Brick by Brick in Croydon, you know, is taking sites that 
that a typical developer you know would often buy and say actually it's impossible to deliver a large chunk of affordable housing on these sites and saying look turns out we can build uh, a development here and get 50% affordable housing and still make money so I don't know what you guys are talking about (laughs) so this is the kind of like you know it's almost kind of like ways of um I wouldn't say breaking the system, but ways of kind of uh, getting around the system and, and, and thinking how you can respond to those challenges in, a, in an innovative way. Hacking their own system. Exactly. Yeah. And that's very much kind of a bit of what we're doing at local, uh, uh, um, at Common Home. Part of what we see ourselves as doing is actually empowering local authorities. They have these sites that they potentially don't necessarily have the resources or a really strong desire to develop, you know, potentially. Sometimes even the knowledge. Yeah, exactly. And they're small sites. They're often, potentially they're a bit difficult, potentially they're a bit out of the way and they've got a lot on their plate. And what we do is we really provide this like suite of both design, finance, development oversight to um to the projects to really allow them to support um affordable housing on these sites and that's another uh, another example which is really getting around the way the system works at the moment okay i'm gonna we're gonna wrap up i've got one more question is there something that you're really excited about coming to market and this 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 could be anything this could be anything from ai programs it could be location analysis it could be the sort of different types of planning tools most of this stuff is in technology you know are you interested in robots and uh i don't know you know drones that are helping to build buildings we're seeing these innovations dropping slowly by slowly is there anything you're going i really hope i get my hoverboard equivalent from after watching Back to the Future, what, what's kind of your, like your hoverboard idea of, I've seen that, I really hope it comes into play. Well, I think this is um, very much in the long term, because I, I have to be honest that as someone who does work in technology, um, the founder of a, of a technology business, I'm often a little bit sceptical about uh, some of the you know supposed innovations out there you know particularly AI is incredible and has the potential to be incredibly powerful but I don't really believe that an AI toothbrush is a thing <laughs> <laughs> um, and yet um, you know it's trying to be sold to me having said that what becomes particularly interesting is because if you look at housing really property in general the essential thing that is ripe for disruption is ownership. So actually, you know, you know if, you think, if you think to like, you know, uh, books like Utopia, the central thing in there is actually thinking about property ownership differently. And I think what's particularly exciting about blockchain is that it could enable a different uh, model of ownership and particularly for... You know, if you think about how that could apply for something like a community land trust, which at the moment is a complete nightmare and filled with bureaucracy, actually being able to um, use the blockchain as a means of um, retaining ownership in a community land trust, stuff like that becomes particularly exciting. So I say very simply, the thing that I'm really excited about is how technology can change models of ownership in property. Excellent. Neil from Common Home. Thank you very much for coming on the Conscious Cities podcast. Thanks, Josh. So a big thank you to Daniil for taking the time to come on the pod so we can hear another view on the innovations in finance in the development sector. If you want to know more about what Daniil and his company are up to, you can check out their website, nativecities.com, as well as custombuild.co. 
Coincidentally, as those who listened to the previous episode with Michael, you'll notice that both Michael and Daniil dropped the blockchain collection as that one big thing that they really want to see make an effect. Perhaps it's time for me to get reading up on blockchain and get someone on the pod who can talk a little bit more about it. So thank you again for listening. We're on iTunes if you didn't find us there. It'd be really great if you could leave a review, hopefully a positive one. That'd be great. To find out more about what we're up to, do check on the website, thecentriclab.com. You can find us on Twitter, at thecentriclab. And if you have any ideas or questions or suggestions for the podcast, send an email to podcast at thecentriclab.com. Thanks very much. I've been Josh. Bye.